Hey, welcome. Uh, my name is Simon Stokes. If you're here with us for the first time, I just say we're glad that you're here. If there's anything that we can do um, to kind of make you feel more at home or to answer the kind of questions you've got, like please don't hesitate to let me know. Um, also want to say that our interns are out of town this week, so um, <laughs> please pray for them that they would come back soon. <laughs> I need them. You can be the boss. <laughs> I um, also want to say, uh, too, if you're thinking about signing up for the Habitat for Humanity build this Saturday, like, please do. That's a great way uh, to, to love and serve this community, to love and be a part of this community, um, and to love and serve Chapel Hill. So it's a great, a great, great, great thing that we'll do on Saturday. Um, it's an, an awesome thing to get to do for the community, someone who doesn't actually have a house, which is a big deal. So that being said, uh, let me get started here. I'm going to read, and then uh, we'll get going. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 9. It's Paul talking about singleness, uh, and as you may know or not, we've been talking about relationships this semester. It says, now this, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Wonderful. Um, so I, I don't know how many of y'all went for fall break to the mountains, or uh, I'm assuming that since everyone here has at least been around the state of North Carolina, that you've at least seen mountains at some point. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're driving towards the mountains, or you're driving up, or maybe hiking on a mountain, and you, you can't see the mountain itself very well. It's covered by clouds. I mean, it's, it's huge, it's beautiful, like you're looking for it, and yet you can't see it. It's got all these clouds in the way. And yet, every now and again, a wind will come by, or a breeze, or the sun will come out, and the clouds are parted for just a few minutes, and you can see the mountain in all its glory. It's huge, it's powerful, it's large, it's majestic, it's got trees on it. It's this huge, ancient thing. And Tim Keller talks about this experience in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, and he says that in a lot of ways, that people are kind of like this mountain, in the sense that as you approach another person and you get to know them, oftentimes the real them is hidden behind all this stuff. Behind maybe their fear of seeing you or being seen. Maybe behind uh, immaturity, behind sin, behind the wounds that we all carry. And that it's hard to get to know this person, but every now and again, every now and again, especially for a Christian, you see some aspect of courage in them or nobility, or love, or patience, or kindness that surprises you, or you hadn't thought was there. And it's amazing. It's like the, the sun has come out, and the clouds have parted, and you see for a second the grandeur of this person, and then the clouds go back over it again, and you're like, well, where is that person at? I don't know if you've ever had that experience or not. But it's there, and it's in, the, in our midst all the time. And in a lot of ways, people are like this because... We're in this constant flux between glory and depravity and becoming the person that God made us to be. I think as we think about this, though, especially as many of us are single people, that we can feel like, okay, I want someone to see that person. I want someone to see that glorious person when the clouds come back. 
the trouble is, I think, for a lot of us, is what do we do in this series that I've been talking about in relationships if I want to be dating and I'm not? Like, what if you want to be dating and you're not? Or you want to be married and you know that's just a long time from now. Some of you are on the cusp of engagement uh, or are recently engaged, Brent McKnight, this week. Uh, <laughs> and y'all will be married in the next couple of years. Uh, good luck, friends. Marriage comes with all kinds of challenges or responsibilities the single person doesn't have to deal with. Others of you may not get married for the better part of a decade. You may be in your 30s when you get married. Some of you may never get married, even though you want it. What do you do with that? There are challenges to this as well. What I've been trying to suggest to you this semester is the sanity in dealing with relationships is not thinking so much of them they become your identity or they become your hope. But it's also, on the other hand, not thinking so little of them that they're little more than kind of a fun way to pass the time. Because that'd be ignoring what we're made for. But what I want to suggest to you all is this, is that single or married, dating or not dating, that you're going to be okay. Because God loves you and God is for you. I think what I want to help you find tonight, though, is a place for our singleness. Or even a place for the singleness of our friends. So I want to talk about three things tonight. I want to talk about the myths of singleness. I want to talk about the gifts of singleness. And I want to talk about the hope of singleness. Myths, gifts, hope. I could not fit, think of a third thing to rhyme with it. Um, sorry. My bad. <laughs> but let me pray for us and we'll get started here. Uh, Father, thank you for these people. Thank you for your word. I pray that as we come... Lord, with our anxieties, with our fears, with our anguish over who will I date, how will I date? If I'm with this person, how will we do this well? Lord, that we would bring those things to you. We wouldn't leave them at the door. We would bring them in here to you. And you would actually deal with them and deal with our hearts and deal with us together in community with you as our God and our Father. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to talk about the myths of singleness first. Um, a few years ago, there was a woman who worked for REF named Paige Benton Brown. Uh, she was much more talented than any of the other campus ministers. And so she uh, was promoted out and eventually went and worked for Redeemer in New York with Tim Keller. But before she left, uh, she wrote an article called Singled Out for Good, where she talks about kind of some of her experience of being a woman in her 30s working in the church and what are some of the myths that people have told her about dating and relationships, because she heard a lot of them. Um, and as we read some of these, listen for the way that she puts her finger on the problem. That the, At the heart of it, like all of our problems, this is not one that's primarily situational, but it actually has a theological aspect to it. So, so she says this, first myth, as soon as you're satisfied by God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. Have you ever heard that myth? As though any of God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment with God. If we had to become perfectly content with God before he gave us any of the other good stuff in our life, like friends or college or a job, then all of us would live in our parents' basement forever. Like, no one would leave if the requirement for him to give you something good was that you'd be totally content with him. Myth two, you're too picky. You're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims, by our needs, that they could somehow be broader than his ability to provide someone for us. Um... That the answer for us would be just then to kind of lower our standards. Like, do you have a pulse? Good. Let's go out, right? <laughs> like, I've met very, very picky people in my life who've gotten married. Like, very picky people. I've met people who are not that picky and who say, like, I will take almost anyone, and it just never seems to work out for them. Pickiness or not pickiness isn't a factor here. Third myth, before you can marry someone wonderful, God has to make you wonderful. 
as though marriage is some sort of kind of second blessing that God grants the properly sanctified. Like, again, if this was the case, would anybody qualify? Like, if, if you had to get, like, to a certain level, like, I wouldn't be married. Katie Stokes would be married. She'd be off somewhere else. Um, but this guy would not be married. Um, sanctification cannot be the deal with marriage. There's lots of people who are not very holy who are married, right? Um, the next myth. Singleness is a second-class stage of life compared to the first-class stage of marriage. That if I was really an adult or really a person, I would be married or I'd be in a relationship. But marriage and singleness can't be deified, as they're this huge thing. Uh, but at the same time, marriage or singleness can't be deprecated, as they're nothing at all. Like, both of these things, both marriage and singleness, reflect the love of God in different ways. Like, spouses reflect the exclusive nature of God's love. Like, they give us a picture of, the, of God and His church together. And yet at the same time, singles in community where it's in your 60s, 50s, 40s, 20s, like when all these people who are different who are, but who are like not married are living together in community, that reflects the inclusive nature of the church. Like both of these things have value. And both need to be seen as something that's valuable for us as a community. Next myth. We can avoid loneliness by getting married. That if I wasn't married, if I was in a relationship, I would never be lonely again. Yo, loneliness can be experienced just as much in a relationship as in singleness. Like all of us have this kind of, what people call it, a God-sized hole in themselves that only He can fill. And sin causes us to exasperate that loneliness sometimes. It causes us to try to put other things in there. Um, as Augustine prayed, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in you. We're always trying to find other things. Trading one set of idols for another. Like, you can be a single and have an idol that says, I'm free to do whatever I want with my time and my money. And then you get married or you get into a relationship and you trade that for another set of idols that this person completes me. But doing that doesn't cure the actual ache of our hearts. Only one relationship does that. And it's with the Lord. So I want to ask this, like, what's at the heart of all this? What's at the heart of all these myths? I think that's an issue of identity. That you are not a Christian single, if you're single, but you are a single Christian. You're a single Christian, not a Christian single. That your identity is not in the fact that the right person hasn't asked you out yet, or that you haven't yet asked out the right person. But your identity is in the fact that on a Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung on a cross for you. And rich or poor, sick or well, single or dating, if you're in Christ, you're not one of the have-nots. You are one of the haves. Can God be less good to you on a Wednesday night in Murphy 116 than when He hung on a cross in your place? No. His goodness is not the effect of His disposition or of your situation, but it's the essence of His personhood. Right? Like This is where you get theological. Bear with me in this. God's goodness to you is not an attitude you can lose or, or gain, but it's an attribute inherent in who He is. God can't stop being good to you, whether you're single or not, any more than I can stop being a slowly balding white guy who lives in Durham. Like, that's just the way it is, y'all. Like, God is stuck with being good. I'm stuck with slowly going bald. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> good. That's good. <laughs> But y'all, I don't know if you figured this out or not yet, but this semester has not been a series of how-to talks on Christian dating. Instead, what we've done is focus on the gospel and focus on relationships because 
marriage and relationships have been instituted by God, and it's these are the main playing fields in which God works in your life. That's why the gospel helps us to understand marriage. And why marriage helps us to understand the gospel. And this is why relationships are so important. This is also why we're focusing on the Bible's teaching on marriage. Because the thing is that RUF believes the Bible doesn't merely reflect the perspective of one culture or time or place. But the teachings of Scripture actually challenge all cultures' narratives on everything that has to do with relationships. Whether it's a culture that thinks, thinks of things as a community, or it's a culture like ours that thinks of things individualistically. Look, Jesus was single, and he's as fully human as he can be, right? Paul is single, and he says he wishes that we could all be as he is. That's not because he's miserable and he wants to share in his misery. It's because singleness, as Paul says here, has opportunities for God's kingdom that are as good as being married. The Bible critiques our view of relationships, right? Think about the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it shows, starts off by showing Adam and Eve getting married, these two people entering into a marriage relationship, and then the fall happens, and then there's the institution of polygamy, which when Genesis was written was actually everywhere. Everybody was polygamous. But Genesis depicts vividly the misery and the havoc that polygamy showcases in family relationships. Women, children are hurt by it. It's a radical critique of that culture. In the New Testament... Uh, when they were writing, the ancient world lifted up long-term singleness as, as illegitimate. But the New Testament lifts it up as this thing that we can aspire to, or we can live in it and be okay. You see, back in the day, marriage and children were seen as the only way to establish a lasting legacy. But what I want to show to you all, though, is that the biblical authors are constantly critiquing their own culture's beliefs. They're not, this is not simply the product of ancient mores or practices and we can't write off the biblical view of marriage, singleness, relationships as being regressive or obsolete. On the contrary, I want to say that it's bristling with practical, realistic insights, with breathtaking promises about marriage. That it doesn't just come out of boring propositions, but it comes through brilliant stories, through poetry. Unless you're able to look at marriage and relationships and your dating and how you think about it through the lens of Scripture, rather than through your own fears or your romanticism, through your own experience or our culture's perspective, then you won't be able to make intelligent decisions about dating, marriage, relationships. And this is especially true if you're sitting here and you're wrestling with your felt sense of singleness. Like, man, the Bible, who knew, right? All right, so if those are the myths of singleness, what's the gift of singleness? The gift of singleness. Again, uh, Paige Britton Brown here. She talks some about um, being a, a woman in her 30s in the church and I don't know if you've had this experience yet, um, men or women, but someone comes up to you after church or someone that knows you from your hometown and they're like, are you seeing anyone yet? Have you seen that? Has that happened to you? It used to happen to me all the time when I was single. Or my mom would ask me that and it was, it was boring and ridiculous. Uh, but So pages at church, it lets out. People are kind of mingling around, talking after church. They're kind of uh, making small talk and a she says that a little bit older woman comes up to her and asks, are you seeing anyone special? And Paige smiles and says, I see you, and you're special. <laughs> you know, like, zing. <laughs> Smart lady. Um, she's being a little salty there, but what's, what's Paige getting at there? She's saying that everyone is made in God's image. And so there aren't classes of people who are special that we need to wait for to expend energy on. That all of our relationships with people are worth special attention. 
You know, see, singleness is not this carte blanche for selfishness. And waiting to find a spouse is not the countermeasure for our self-absorption. We can't say to ourselves, well, when I start dating someone, then I'll really start to deal with how I waste my time and my money. But until then, I'm just going to rot on the couch with my boys and watch football. Like, that does not work, right? The gospel is the only antidote for our self-centeredness. And if you think you can wait before you start to deal with how selfish you are, you are deeply misguided. And I think this is part of the problem for us as we feel our singleness. That self-centeredness is sin. And sin is misery. Have you ever thought that maybe part of the problem with how you feel about being single is that it's because you're so self-centered with it? That if you thought less of your time and not who's out there, but actually took advantage of the people whom God has actually put in your life to love, to serve, to pay attention to those people, you might actually be happier or you might be a better friend. That maybe that would be like a gymnasium for you to train and maybe even one day be a better spouse if that was God's will. And that's exactly part of the deal, isn't it? That God's will may not necessarily be that you'd be married. But it's definitely that you'd be holy. And that his kingdom would come in and through you. And you can do that single or married. God's will is that you would be a blessing to those around you. And ultimately that... When you left this world, that would be much better because you lived in it and worked in it for His glory and not for your own. And your range of relational options is not dating marriage or living as a castaway on the moon. But your work here is, is human flourishing. It's the flourishing of the communities around you. It's the flourishing of this place and this time. And that mandates a rich relational tapestry around us of people that you know well and people that are kind of on the fringe, but that you care about, that you pray about? If at the center of your identity is someone who is alone, forgotten about, deeply concerned about what you can receive from the people around you, rather than what you can give to them, then of course you'll feel absolutely miserable and needy. Of course, because your identity is about you and everything that you don't have. But if at the center of your identity is that God himself has seen you in your need, your greatest need, and that it's not that you'd be in a relationship with another sinner, but that you'd be in a relationship with a holy God who doesn't just date you, but who marries you in spite of the fact that you show up as his enemy, then what happens to all of those other needs? They don't go away. They get put in the right place. It's not that they disappear or you stop longing for another person. It's that you can see that if God has met your deepest core need, then he's still good to you even if you never get married. Or even if it's a really long time before you get married. That your life has started. And it can be fulfilling even if it's a long time before you meet that special person. Oftentimes, the only time that people talk about human covenants or having close relationships that are not going to go away is at a wedding. But how weak and anemic that is, y'all. If our God is a God of covenants who makes lasting agreements between himself and his people, then all of our relationships are covenantal. The gospel covenant is not about how much you have loved God or how much I've loved God, which is very little. But the gospel covenant is about how much God has loved you. And if that's the truest, most defining aspect of your identity, then how should that inform your relationships as a single person? It means that you live out of the overflow of God's love. And so your relationships aren't about how much your friends love you. No. Your relationships are about how much you can love your friends. 
Ask yourself this simple question. Are the people sitting next to you, people right here in this room, are they here for you? Or are you here for them? How you answer that is a pretty good clue as to whether you think of it as the gift of singleness or as the gift of singleness. Is your singleness a gift that God has given you to love the other people in your life? Or is it a gift that you're looking to return as quickly as possible? No one who is single should expect being relationally poor just by virtue of being single. Rather, we should expect to covenant with the people around us, to initiate, to serve, to commit ourselves to one another, regardless of whether or not we have a special someone. All the someones in your life are special. That doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't want to be married. But it does mean that whether you meet someone tomorrow and walk down the aisle with them in a few years, or you die single at the age of 95, that God is still good to you. Being single is not God's plan B for you. It may just be an aspect of his, I love you so much I died for you, plan A. But y'all, this talk is not just for singles though, right? There's some of us who are actually dating or who are engaged. And uh, those of you... (laughs) I love Brent. (laughs) I love that I'm making him so embarrassed right now. (laughs) Um, Those of you who are dating, and for some of you that dating is soon to kind of turn into engagement or marriage, remember this. Then the same way that a single person's singleness is not for them, but for God's kingdom. So your dating or your marriage is not for you two alone, but it's for those around you. That couples need to deeply commit their lives to the friends who are still single. And one day, if you are married, invite single people into your house for dinner. Or to live with you even if you have a guest room. Deeply invest in the single person in your midst. As Paul says here, like that person has more time to spend on the Lord, on his kingdom. So invest in that person and see the dividends that pays. Paul's point here is that every Christian is automatically signed up for kingdom duty. And the only difference between the single person or the person in a dating relationship is how they get to exercise that duty. If that's the gift of singleness, then I want to ask this. What's the hope of singleness? What's the hope of singleness? Y'all, I hope that this series has been helpful for you as you wrestle kind of with the idols of marriage and relationships. Because you see, the deal is this, is that even the best marriages will feel lonely at times. That you can genuinely love a person, you can spend time with them, you can give yourself to them, you can forgive them and be forgiven by them. You can buy a house, have a kid, purchase a really nice like wood-paneled minivan with surround sound and that like inset DVD player with the headphone jacks. Uh, that you say is for the kids, but you know it's really so that when you go on car trips, you can hop in the back and listen to 30 Rock. Um, that still will not be enough for you at times. Why is that? We'll get more into this as we unpack Ephesians 5 in the next few weeks. But it's because in the same way that our relationships can't be about ourselves, neither can our, our marriages. You see, a marriage is a picture that points to a greater reality beyond itself. Not the marriage between a man and a woman, but the marriage between God and His people. And as I close, I want to suggest that though marriage won't save you, that if you will be saved, then you will be saved by a marriage. Not an earthly marriage, but a heavenly one. You see, the way that Jesus is going to save you is by marrying you. And to some of us, that's going to sound weird or sugary sweet, but it's really real, actually. You see, the Old Testament book of Hosea paints a graphic picture of this love. In it, Hosea, the prophet, is approached by God and he says, Hosea, I don't want you to be single anymore. I want to set you up. See that woman over there? Gomer. She's the town prostitute. 
And I want you to marry her. And when she leaves you, which she will, I want you to pursue her. And Hosea is not a long book, but by chapter 4, Gomer has run away. She ends up being sold as a slave. And there's Hosea bidding for her. 100, 200, 300, buying her back. And when he gets her back, he treats her tenderly. And he begs her not to leave and go back to her former life. But then he turns in prayer and he says, God, this is horrible. Why would you do this to me? Why would you set me up with this person? And God answers and says, you and I are going to give our hearts to people who are going to reject us over and over again. Because I'm a husband whose wife has rejected him. And unless you understand that, you won't understand how my heart works. I go after the lost and the lonely and the forgotten and the dirty and the shamed. You have to marry this woman, Hosea. You can't just be kind to her, give her some money and hang out with her. That's not enough for her. And y'all, you know this in some way too, don't you? That someone, maybe in your life who is going through a breakdown, might call you and on the first night you would talk to them on the phone for hours and stay up late. And then on the second night, they would call you again. You'd stay up late again. On the third night, again, you'd stay up. But after a while, you would kind of let it go. And let it go to voicemail. Because if it's just a friend, you can put them off. But when you marry someone, their destiny is bound up in yours. Their wounds are your wounds. Their financial disability is yours. Their despair is yours. You can't just leave that person. And God's saying that unless you marry this woman, Hosea, you won't know what it's like for me to be married to you. And y'all, there's no more beautiful a picture of the gospel than this. Because God is binding up His joy with us. He'll not be happy till we're happy. He'll not be happy till we're holy and satisfied by Him. The New Testament letter from Jude ends like this. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior. Whose joy? It's not just your joy one day, it's God's. Then that moment when all this is done, when God's kingdom has come... He's going to fill this universe with laughter. He's going to sing love songs over His people. Single and lonely or married and overwhelmed, when God finishes work, there'll be joy and it'll look like a wedding. How though? How? How does He marry His people? Y'all, I'm going to end with this. Even though there was never a more eligible bachelor than Jesus of Nazareth, He was humble. He was secretly very rich. He could do miracles. He was incredibly wise. He was the heir of a kingdom. He's even nice to his mom. For real. <laughs> but his whole life, he's single. He's single. Why? Because he's waiting to buy back his bride. All of his miracles, his wisdom, his poverty, ultimately his suffering on the cross, are so that he can buy back his bride from what's enslaved her. From sin, from death, from misery. Single folks. Have you ever thought of Jesus as the chief single? Have you ever thought of God as someone that gets your longing for another person? Have you ever thought of yourself as that person? Jesus is totally eligible and yet He's alone. His family and His friends don't get them. In the end, they abandon Him. On the cross, Jesus is cut off. Why? To bring you into fellowship with God, that He would be with you and you would be with Him. There's nothing that God doesn't spare Himself for the, for the sake of His people. There's nothing God doesn't give His children when they're ransomed from sin and death by the blood of His Son. He gives you His acceptance, His acknowledgement, His welcome into the very heart of things, His welcome into His heart. The sense that the door on which we've been knocking this whole semester will at last fully be open for us. C.S. Lewis says it this way, Apparently then, 
our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe for which we now feel cut off. To be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy. You're not crazy if you want this stuff. But it's the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. Is there a place for this kind of God in your understanding of your ache for another person? For a God who marries you? For a God who invites you in? The song you were created to sing will never be complete until you know these notes. Never. Upon Him we have to cast all of our longings, our joys, our ultimate hopes. There's no other that can bear that weight. And yet He bears it so well. And as always, that's my invitation to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work of your son Jesus, that he buys us back from sin, from death, from misery. Lord, that he buys us to be his bride. Lord, that he understands our singleness and our loneliness in that. Lord, our longing to be married, our longing to be in deep relationship. Lord, he knows those things. He's counted our tears. God, I pray that you would help us to know him. You know the one who shed tears on our behalf, who shed his blood on our behalf. Lord, would you be at work in us? Would you help us to bring our loneliness, our singleness, our glory to him, and be redeemed through him and through his work? In his name we pray. Amen.